Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Richard Osijo, a host on New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. And this interview is being done in partnership with the Community and Urban Sociology section of the American Sociological Association and its academic journal, City and Community. Joining me today is Zachary Levinson, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. And today he's going to talk about his recent book, Delivery as Dispossession, Land Occupation and Eviction in the Post-Apartheid City, a story of the relationship between residents and state actors and the collective struggles for land through a comparative ethnographic examination of two informal settlements with divergent unexpected outcomes in Cape Town, South Africa. Zach, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Cool. So I wonder if you could just start by telling us just briefly about your background, how you came to work on this project, and how you came to write this book. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, as, as you said, I'm a sociologist. I teach sociology at, at uh, UNC Greensboro. Um, and, um, you know, when I, this actually, this book came out of my dissertation field work. Um, and, and when I began grad school, I'd actually um, never even considered working on South Africa. So when I began grad school, I started a really similar project in Myanmar. Um, I was learning Burmese, and um, and I was interested in in these mass evictions that had taken place in the mis- in the mid '90s in Myanmar. And I think one one reason or one thing that really drew me to this project was I noticed a lot of the work on eviction coming out in sociology it was very um, individualized in the American context, but there was very little work on on mass evictions. So the, the uprooting of largely informal settlements, so people living in self-built housing like shacks, um, and when urban governments would come in, municipal governments would come in, and, and uh, in the case of, of the Burmese capital, 20% of the population was uprooted and forcibly relocated in 1996. And so I got really, really interested in, in this project. But one thing that um, drew me to South Africa was that in the case of, of Myanmar, it was an authoritarian government. And so when we think about why is a government evicting, um, it, it was less interesting than in, in a case like South Africa, where a democratic government acting in the name of, um, you know, remedying the, the racial inequities wrought by centuries of dispossession, apartheid, acting in the name of remedying um, the, those inequities winds up itself evicting and mass evicting parts of the population. And so one thing that drew me to South Africa is on the one hand, I knew that the South African government after apartheid um, had delivered more free formal housing, arguably, than any other modern democracy. Um, You know, there's some debate over whether Brazil would have overtaken South Africa. But um, at this point, South Africa has delivered more free formal housing than any other modern democracy. On the other hand, I constantly saw reports from various um, anti-eviction activist groups on the ground um, where shack settlements were being 
forcibly uprooted. Um, and it wasn't getting so much attention in, in the media, but I would see all of these social movement reports. And, and as I first started to go to South Africa about a dozen years ago, um, I actually started with, well, I simultaneously um, began to work with a number of these anti-eviction groups on the ground, but also began to interview housing officials. Um, so I started in Durban, moved to Johannesburg and Cape Town, and and as I would talk to housing officials, found it really interesting that they would that they wouldn't straightforwardly engage on the question of eviction. So if I would ask about ongoing evictions, they would say something like, um, "Well, there, you know, it started with there are no evictions." Um, and then they, you know, when I cite a specific case that I was following, they said, "Well, that's more complicated, right?" And so there's this whole narrative of not wanting to be seen as a kind of um, you know, as this uh, eviction regime, precisely because the legitimacy of the post-apartheid state is predicated on being this remedial force, on counteracting the racial inequities of, of apartheid. Yet here was a, a state that was forcibly evicting large segments of the population. And, and let me just conclude by saying that, um, that, you know, this is a case where and the data is not great on this, but somewhere between 50 and, I mean 50, 15 and 20% of the urban population of South Africa is living in informal housing. So we're not talking about a few shacks on the median here. We're talking about a fifth of the urban population. Um, and many of these are facing eviction if they lack title, um, if there's a development project. Um, and I can talk a little bit about rationales for eviction in a bit. Yeah, thank you. I, I didn't know that about Myanmar, and I learned a lot about South Africa from this book. So, so let's let's dive in here. So, you you, you start the book with a story of this couple named uh, Faiza and Ibrahim, who they start out as among a thousand squatters who settled on the outskirts of Cape Town in shacks and tents, and it's in this settlement called Captain uh, Slip. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Is that that's it? Okay. So now when the people in this land occupation were evicted, Faiza and Ibrahim, they moved to another one called Sikolo. And it started really small. There's only 50 shacks or so, but then it grows. But unlike in Captain's Clip, they were not evicted in Sikolo. And these are your cases and the book's puzzle arises from these cases. You got one settlement gets evicted despite being located on public property and being fairly remote, and the other doesn't, despite being on private property and being near a major thoroughfare and a, a, a fairly middle-class area. So tell us more about this couple, about Faiza and Ibrahim, their journey first to Captain Sklip and then to Sikolo, and how their story and their impressions of these settlements speak to the situation of land occupations and evictions in the apartheid era and now the post-apartheid era of South Africa? Sure. So, um, you know, I think most broadly, I might say that what I think Faiza and Ibrahim's story um, really solidifies here is that what we're not talking about is land occupation as the last resort of the most desperate segment of a population. It's actually much more common than people assume. So in their case, they grew up in houses. Um, both of their families were forcibly evicted under apartheid in the 1970s. They were, uh, and this is a point I make in the book, you know, often we talk about apartheid as 
this moment of dispossession. So people are forcibly evicted. And then we imagine the post-apartheid period as one in which then there's a kind of, um, well, what I call in the title, delivery, housing delivery, right? So that housing delivery counteracts the dispossession of apartheid. And what I argue in the book is that it's actually more complicated than that. And we need to think about the relationship between dispossession and delivery in each period. So starting with apartheid, the period in which Faiz and Ibrahim's families were uprooted from formal housing. I mean, in the case of Ibrahim, grew up in um, District 6 in central Cape Town, which at the time was a, a flourishing community with small businesses. Um, and, you know, his family was doing quite well. And then the apartheid regime in, in the late 60s through the, the mid-70s uproots 60,000 people, all of them, as you can imagine, um, well, in this case, um, an ethno-racial group that goes under the name colored in a South African context, but um, that all of, you know, 60,000 of them are forcibly uprooted. Um, and so that's the moment of dispossession, but there's also this moment of delivery. So the apartheid state builds then housing um, for, for far to the east of, of where these evictions take place, and they forcibly relocate these families who are uprooted from District 6 um, to these new build neighborhoods, where they then build small houses. And some of them are, are um, just distributed free of charge. Most of them are, are on a rent-to-own scheme. So that, that was the case in both Faiza and Ibrahim's family. So they wind up in these new built townships. Um, so a lot of the townships under apartheid, we imagine, are from some very early period. Well, where they wound up, Mitchell's Plain, wasn't really built until the mid-1970s. They're like the biggest township in, in Cape Town today, Kailicha. Same story, but for um, for Black African Kosa-speaking families, largely. Um, wasn't built until 1983. So these, these townships are constructed much later than we might think. So they wind up in these townships in formal housing, but then there's no provision for subsequent generations. And um, starting in the late 80s, there's a, a very intense economic crisis in South Africa. Um, and without going into too much detail, just to say it persists into the present. And there's this unemployment crisis where the real unemployment rate in their neighborhood is something like 65%. On paper, it's about 35-40%. Um, but the by the best estimates we have, more than two-thirds of people are having trouble finding work. So what happens? You have the next generation can't find work, so they're living at home. But these are often two-bedroom, three-bedroom houses. Um, so imagine you have three, four kids. Each of them have three or four kids. You all wind up in these overcrowded houses. So it's a situation then where what do you do if, when you begin to, to raise your own family? And so often land occupations... Um, in addition to just a, a kind of fix for desperation, can be a kind of um, a, a drive for autonomy. You know, um, as Faiza once told me, you know, we wanted our home. I think I, I quote her saying this in the book. You know, not just not just a place to live, but this feeling that that she was actually raising a family and sort of um, you know becoming autonomous in this sense. So her and Ibrahim. Um, who each have their own families, and then they link up at this point, get together, and they've been together ever since. 
decided to participate in the um, in the Captain's Clip land occupation. Now, I think one kind of black box in uh, the study of, of land occupations, or I might even say of informal housing in general, because one thing that drove me to this project um, was that there's quite a bit of work on informal housing and informal settlements as they exist, but very little on the formation of the settlements, this process through which they come into being and how the state comes to tolerate them. And, um, and so what happens in this case is that they encounter, Faizan Ibrahim, in their neighborhood, they encounter this group. Um, I can talk about them in more detail in a bit if, if you would like, but just called the Mitchell's Plain Housing Association. Or at that point, they had a different name, the Mitchell's Plain, which is the name of their township, Backyard Dwellers Association. So at that point, um, people were in overcrowded houses or others who were in such overcrowded houses that they were forced out and built shacks in the backyards of those houses, um, wanted to you know, strike it out on their own. And so they encountered this Mitchell's Plain uh, Backyard Dwellers Association. And at the time, it purports to be a legitimate um, arm of the state. And so it begins holding these meetings at a local elementary school and at a, um, at a kind of um, community center in their immediate neighborhood and telling people if they pay a very small fee, um, you know, something like a couple of U.S. dollars, um, then they will have access to this plot of land. And so they all go out at like, you know, 5.30 in the morning on the, on the specified date and they begin to build. And this group is assigning plots. And the, the um, you know, this group, I think, the Mitchell's Plain Backyard Dwellers Association is so important here because what it does is represent the land occupation as a very particular kind of project. You know, we might imagine that land occupations are militant social movements, um, and they can be, right? But with these militant social movements where thousands of people are going on and fighting the police and staking a claim to the property. And, um, and that's not what happened on this date initially. That this organization represented it as a fairly routine affair. And so they wind up and people are on their hands and knees kind of um, bounding their property. You know, it's almost quite literally a process of enclosure. Um, and this kind of... Uh, you know, desire to become a homeowner, um, I think, really impacts the way that people in practice, uh, because the land occupation gets articulated in this way, that they begin to um, to build checks almost as private property. And so in the book, I call it, and I can talk about this in a bit as well, but a, a serialized approach. So um, the alternative to this approach is what happens when they eventually get evicted from Captain's Clip and wind up in Sitalo. And in Sitalo, something very different happens. There's no organization that's coming around saying, we're distributing these plots. There, um, a group of people who are living in an informal settlement before are facing eviction. They have to figure out something. And they, they all have, and this is really important, they weren't living in formal houses. They weren't living in um, in backyard shacks. And so they're living in a community. And so when they encounter the repressive arm of the state through facing eviction, as a community, what happens is they begin to organize. So instead of having this intermediary or kind of outside group, like the Mitchell's Plain Backyard Dwellers Association, you have self-organization, essentially. Um, the formation of something almost approximating a social movement, though 
they don't see themselves, I should, to be clear here, as at, at least initially as some kind of anti-state force or nothing of the sort. The idea is to organize to secure access to housing, and they do. Um, and so they begin to move into Sigdalo. And so one uh, one thing that's quite different, they're kind of distinct about these two land occupations is that they have really different political logics, right? So one starts with what I've just called a serialized logic, um, where they essentially participate in the land occupation as individuals, as individuals in a series. But in this other occupation, they participate as what I call a fused group. And these are terms, the series and the fused group, that I'm taking from Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, his book Critique of Dialectical Reason. But the idea is that, that if in one occupation they're participating as individuals but together they happen to be together but in the other they're participating as a collective force and this becomes really important in the book yeah thank you it's a it's a a powerful introduction because the 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 human story i think behind these settlements often gets overlooked and so it's a it's a great way to to introduce a lot of these topics and and issues uh Something the the book does quite well is challenge several existing explanations we have for making sense of these post-apartheid evictions and offers its own new and novel one. So these these existing ones, they concern the role and intentions of the state in spatial clearances. And you're proposing something different that uses Antonio Gramsci's theory of the state called the integral state, which is, a, as you discuss, a more relational theory of the state than the more sweeping, fixed theoretical perspectives that tend to dominate our understanding of the eviction of informal settlements. So like, walk us through these existing explanations and their shortcomings and how you see Gramsci's theory as a stronger intervention here for explaining what you observed in these two settlements in Cape Town. <laughs> So, um, you know, I, I would say broadly what a lot of these explanations have in common is what in the book I call an autonomous theory of the state. But if you think about a lot of this this 80s literature from political sociology, the idea of bringing the state back in that assumes this autonomous state that acts, as I call it in the book, upon populations. So the state is a self-enclosed entity that kind of decides and imposes those decisions upon populations. And this takes a number of, of logics. Um, but I think when we, you know, when we think about um, literature on gentrification, or if we think about literature on evictions in the global south of, of these large informal settlements, what they have in common is it imagines a municipal state somehow collaborating with capital that then decides. And this moment of decision making is key, that they make a decision, but almost in isolation, and then implement that decision as policy. And so then eviction gets implemented, um, but decided in advance. And one problem I began to encounter is that all of these, uh, and, and there are all sorts of variations. So we can imagine um, some of this literature on what, what goes under the name world-class city-making, that the notion that a municipality, say, clears uh, visible shack settlements to help facilitate foreign direct investment. Um, so often these, these arguments have an economic logic, um, but, you know, or, or we might imagine that it's about 
say, racialized clearances and keeping, um, you know, because obviously apartheid is now over. But if you were to look at the, the racialized geography of Cape Town, it's very much um, mutually exclusive townships. The geography of, of apartheid absolutely persists. Um, and so you could imagine, hey, maybe it's a, a kind of racial state trying to keep um, racialized groups in their quote-unquote own places, right? Something like this. But what I kept encountering as I began to look at um, variation in outcomes, so some of these settlements are evicted, others are not, um, kept going against the grain. So when I started this, I imagined, uh, you know, I, I was really influenced by um, Neil Smith's work on gentrification and um, the new urban frontier and was thinking of doing something similar, a kind of quantitative project rooted in using GIS to map. He uses um, gentrification frontiers and analyzing New York. I was going to do something like eviction frontiers and then try to correlate these frontiers with development frontiers and make an argument about, you know, eviction in the name of development projects, something like this. And what I found in practice, as I began to look at, again, these varied outcomes, and let me just say, this is something that I think is absolutely underdeveloped in the literature, that we have quite a bit of explanation as to why do states evict in the, you know, in abstract or kind of in general, what motivates a government to evict a population. But there's very little on how eviction decisions are made. You might say, if some settlements are evicted and others are not, why? Well, if we use the kind of um, these overarching um, explanations that, are, again, accord a kind of autonomy to the state, it makes these decisions and then implements them, I kept finding cases that went against the grain. So when we take, say, Captain's clip versus Galo. Sitalo is ultimately tolerated, still exists today. Captain's Clip has been evicted since 2012. There's still people on the land. Um, that's a whole other story. But, um, well, I would have expected Captain's Clip to be tolerated. It's on municipally owned land, so, you know, public land. Uh, whereas Sitalo is on land that's owned by two private landowners. So if it's about protecting, you know, if, if the explanation here is protecting private property, well, here's an outcome that goes against that kind of explanation. Well, if it's about real estate development, Captain's Clip was evicted in 2012. Nothing's been done with the land. But Sigalo, there is an attempt to actually develop the land by those who are who own it. Yet the informal settlement persists on the land. And it's now many tens of thousands of people living on the land. Um, when, um, you know, when it, when it comes to the racial logic of evictions, in the case of, uh, Captain's Clip, it was an overwhelmingly so-called colored population that moved onto the land. But again, this is in a township called Mitchell's Plain that historically is something like 97% colored. So to put it frankly, we might say it's so-called colored people in colored space. But what happens in the case of Sikalo is you wind up with largely black African um, land occupiers who are coming from the next township over. And so you wind up with black African people in so-called colored space, which causes all kinds of tensions in the neighborhood. Um, racist neighbors across the street want them out on racialized grounds. There are mass mobilizations. And, but despite having a majority 
black African um, land occupation, though I should point out it was actually a very, very mixed population um, uh, in terms of, of language, in terms of racial groups, but it was majority black African in colored space, yet it's tolerated. But when so-called colored people are nearly exclusively um, dominating the occupation, it winds up being evicted. So, you know, without going into too much detail, detail here, let me just say that all of these various explanations would have predicted an opposite outcome. And so I got really, really interested in how can we explain what happened? How is it, in other words, that if all the existing theories would have told us that Sikala would have been evicted, but Captain's clip would have been tolerated, why did we have the opposite outcome? And this is where I turned to, to Gramsci, um, but without putting it in, in Gramscian terms, to put it in, I think, the simplest terms possible, let me just say that what I found was um, something that pushed back against this autonomous state, as I've, I've called it, or, you know, as James Scott famously wrote in, in his book, Seeing Like the State, this, this notion that the state sees populations below and then projects populations upon them, what I saw instead was what I call this relational view of the state, where instead of just um, the state devising a, a policy in isolation and then imposing it, this policy emerges through interactions with land occupiers themselves. Now, to be clear, this isn't just some um, valorization of the from below for its own sake. I actually think it has real analytic value. So that value comes from, um, you know, as I argue in the book, how residents see the state impacts how the state, state sees residents. So if we think about James Scott's formulation, seeing like a state, well, the state only sees in relation to how residents see that state. So what happens if we think about how these two occupations were articulated really, really differently? Captain's clip, that was the one where the outside organization was represented as distributing plots of land. So what, what winds up happening is that residents begin to see the, the occupation as very individualized. Um, and they see the state as a partner in delivery. It's very much a partner in delivery. They see this, this organization that's, that's passing out the plots, even if it turns out to be illegal and that the group is not representing the government, they see this, the state as a partner in delivery. But in the other case, Sigalo, from the get-go, they face the state as a straightforward repressive apparatus. They've experienced the state. I mean, many of them, them um, you know, cut their teeth in the anti-apartheid movement. They see the state as very repressive. Um, and so what winds up happening is they have a very particular view of the state. And that particular view of the state impacts how they organize, how they comport themselves. Um, and so in one case, they wind up serializing themselves, sort of acting as individuals, acting simultaneously, but not collectively, and occupying these individualized plots of land. But in the other case, in Scalo, they wind up collectively occupying the land. Um, and so what we see here is how they see the state affects how they organize. But now, if we turn to the kind of James Scott view, we can imagine now they've comported themselves as populations of various sorts. The serialized population in one case, the fused group, the collective in the other case. Well, now we've got different kinds of populations, and now the state sees them differently. So the relational aspect is 
how residents see the state impacts how the state sees them, if that makes sense. And, and how the state sees them, of course, impacts how they see the state. And so it's this, this dialectic, um, not a kind of, you know, what I try to do in the book is to refuse both from above and from below views as one-sided. And thinking about how these together, and this is where Gramsci comes in, um, Gramsci had this theory that he called the integral state, a kind of expanded view of the state that includes civil society within this thing that we call the state. And so I, th he, too, is putting forward this relational view where political society and civil society, what we might say, um, you know, the formal terrain of the state and self-organization of, of um, land occupiers, these two things interact. And the totality of that thing is what Gramsci calls the integral state. So, you know, to make it a bit less complicated, let me just say that this formulation about how residents see the state impacting how the state sees them, that whole process, that whole relational process is what Gramsci calls the integral state. And what it does is it allows us to get away from this view where, um, which I think is really, really prevalent in urban sociology and urban studies, where the state is this thing in isolation that hovers above civil society and just makes decisions and projects them and implements these policies. And instead, we see that actually the self-organization of, of squatters matters. It actually impacts these even policy outcomes or things that we call the state. Right. So so it's a very different view. Um, and this is where I kind of I try to blend uh, political sociology, kind of bring insights from political so uh, sociology to bear upon urban sociology and think about how urban sociologists have tended to view the state. Yeah, it's a it's, a, it's really effective, I think, this uh, this intervention. It's uh, really well done, the, the, the fusion of the two. Um, so, you know, You've introduced them a bit here, but I, I want to hear more about the, the key words in the title, which is delivery and dispossession. And in chapter two, you discuss the relationship between these two approaches to managing housing and how they switched after the fall of the apartheid regime. Now, what's what's the significance of this history and, and how is the relationship between delivery and dispossession today salient in housing practices and among housing officials in South Africa? Sure, no, that's a great question. Um, now, you know, I already talked a little bit about under apartheid, how we can't just think about it as, you know, if we, if we take delivery in the title, again, as housing delivery, the provision by the government of formal housing. If we take, um, you know, we, we can't just say apartheid was this moment of dispossession where people are forcibly uprooted, and then post-apartheid is this period of democracy where where the state then delivers housing. And so, you know, in that kind of neat periodization, we'd have apartheid equals dispossession, post-apartheid equals delivery. And what I do in the book, especially in the second chapter, is to show how historically um, there is a conscious attempt under apartheid to link delivery to dispossession. And so in uprooting tens of thousands of people at a time, and really we're talking, um, it was three and a half million people who were forcibly uprooted under apartheid. And as you can imagine, um, we're talking about racialized populations. They're forcibly uprooted. Um, but after apartheid, 
Oh, and, and so under Pedro, they're forcibly uprooted, and then new housing is built. These are the, the things that go under the name townships, um, a term people are still using today. But they take on a very uh, particular geography. So what happens is people are purged, uh, racialized populations are purged from from city centers, which are then rendered white, and then populations are then divided. And so you wind up with a so-called colored area and a so-called black African area and a so-called, you know, Indian area. Um, they're divided in this sense, always on the periphery. And so if you look at almost any, you know, these, these sort of uh, racial dot maps that exist for cities, if you were to look at Johannesburg, if you were to look at Cape Town, you'll see the same thing. It's it's a little more extreme in, in Cape Town, but you'll see a largely, even today, this geography persists, especially in Cape Town. So in Cape Town, you see a white city center flanked by um, even wider southern suburbs. And then as you go eastward, you have a, a black African belt down the middle with colored buffers on, on both sides. So you wind up with a situation where that didn't just happen. That was through housing delivery, that that kind of geography was, was consciously um, orchestrated by the apartheid state. Now, what happens after apartheid is that the, the relationship is reversed. So if under apartheid, I'm arguing that delivery enabled dispossession, after apartheid, I'm arguing that dispossession enables delivery, but with a caveat. It doesn't actually enable delivery, and I'll explain why. But the important point here is that housing officials think that dispossession enables delivery. So what do I mean? So, as I've already talked about a little bit, after evictions have played out, number of these cases, I, was, I mean, this was really perplexing to me when I started my fieldwork. I expected the straightforward development project story. But again and again, a large informal settlement, and sometimes tens of thousands of people, sometimes a few thousand people, sometimes my smallest case was a thousand people, um, they're evicted. And then, you know, I've, I've been doing this fieldwork for a dozen years now. There's no new development after the project, you know, after the eviction on the land. Often it remains vacant. And I kept seeing this again and again. Um, so why then are these evictions happening? And so through, through um, a number of interviews with housing officials in, in multiple cities in South Africa, I started to discern a pattern where um, land occupiers were repeatedly dismissed as what were called, uh, what housing officials would call queue jumpers. So when the government is passing out this housing and you know, they've delivered something in the neighborhood, the, the figures are highly contested, but they've distributed something in the neighborhood of 4 million houses since 1994. When you take that as a, you know, as a fraction of the South African population, it's quite a number. When you think about if each house has on average, you know, according to the census on average, about three and a half residents, um, and you do the math that winds up, quite a bit of housing distribution. But here's the problem. The pace at which they're distributing that housing is such that there's a waiting list for housing. In other words, if you're in need of housing, and the government calls it being on the backlog, so they have this housing backlog of people in need of formal housing, they're usually living in informal housing, and you register to be on what they call the waiting list. So when I use this term, as housing officials do, queue jumpers, that's the reference to the queue, the line, for housing, the waiting list. So people are on this waiting list for housing. 
but here's the thing. Right now, um, and, and there's no, these aren't official numbers, but according to the, um, to one of the most prominent housing rights lawyers in, in South Africa who works at the Socioeconomic Rights Institute um, in Johannesburg, in Cape Town now, the average time on the waiting list is 60 years. Six zero. What this means, to put it in perspective, the average life expectancy in South Africa is just a few years, a few years more than that, in the low 60s. So what we're talking about here is basically a lifetime of waiting. Well, so what do you do in the meantime? And I think this moment of in the meantime is crucial here for, for analytic reasons. Because what do you do in the meantime? You occupy land, and people do. So people who are on the waiting list are then occupying land, not because they're trying to force themselves to the top of the waiting list, but because where else are they going to go? So they occupy land to have a place in the meantime. But, and this is crucial, housing officials don't see this as a kind of end in itself, as occupying land to have housing in the meantime. Housing officials, and I saw this again and again, uh, again, and again in interviews, would say, nope, these people are queue jumpers. Why? These people are jumping to the top of the waiting list. Why? What happens, kind of ironically here, it's housing officials producing queue jumping. So what happens is people are occupying land, and then government officials see these occupations and see them as unsightly, um, as potentially uh, interfering with the process of housing delivery or... You know, more broadly, it's it's an embarrassment to a post-apartheid state where the backlog since the end of apartheid has actually grown. The number of new shack settlements has increased. Again, the data is, is iffy, but um, the best measures we have, something like tenfold increase in the number of new informal settlements since the end of apartheid. So a, a growth of, of informal housing a growth in the backlog, or in some cities at least remaining stable, despite the delivery of all that housing. Um, and so what winds up happening is that new informal settlements are seen as an embarrassment to the municipal governments doing the housing delivery, and to the provincial governments doing the housing delivery. And so then the municipality wants to evict these people. Where are they going to move them? Often, um, and, and this is really important too, that the South African Constitution, passed in 1996, the, the first post-apartheid constitution, ratified in 96 rather, um, guarantees the right to housing, for what you know, whatever that may mean, um, and guarantees freedom from eviction. But of course, evictions are proceeding. So how does this play out? Well, in the case of these evictions, the government needs to offer people alternative accommodation. You know, this term that's that's um, developed from the, the case law that's come out of some of these constitutional cases that have gone to the constitutional court in, in Johannesburg. So they have to provide alternative accommodation. And one way of doing this is moving people into formal housing. So all this is to say, when people are on the waiting list, but they occupy land, often what happens is local government officials move those people into formal housing, despite it not being, quote-unquote, their turn on the waiting list. Then, after the fact, the government officials attack them as queue jumpers. And this is significant, I think, for two reasons. One, the government has just produced the queue jumper. The individuals weren't asking for formal housing now. They're trying to occupy um, land in the meantime, 
as they wait for housing. And second, government officials are imputing motivations to individuals. Again and again, when I would interview participants in, in land occupations about their rationale for, for occupying the land, it was almost always to have housing in the meantime. Sometimes it was a little more specific, and it was about dignity and autonomy and you know, starting a family, and, um, but having one's own house. They imagined it as a kind of process of becoming a homeowner, in the, you know, a homeowner in the making. Now, government officials, housing officials in particular, um, at the municipal level, retroactively impute the motivation to these land occupiers that they only occupied the land to get housing now. In other words, to jump the queue. And so they wind up attacking these individuals as queue jumpers. And they create this artificial division between, on the one hand, those who wait patiently on the waiting list, like they should, like a good citizen, and then queue jumpers, who, you know, in the kind of um, old Victorian idiom, become undeserving poor. And the interesting thing here is there is no distinction between those who are deserving and undeserving because they're the same people. The same people waiting on the waiting list are the same people occupying land. Um, and so then the government makes a decision as to which people are queue jumpers and which people are waiting patiently. And that plays out through this relational process. So how people organize themselves in these land occupations winds up affecting how the government sees them. Yeah, let's let's jump into that, because this is where we get into the the really rich nuanced analyses which you just started providing the the, the nuance behind these uh, officials and their view toward these folks and the, the the disjuncture between how these people see themselves so the the real the, the the really rich data analyses that cover this idea of the civil society and the political society fusion are across chapters three, four, five, and six. And three and four focus on the civil society articulations of this politics of seriality and politics of fusion that you mentioned earlier in these two settlements. And you're showing in these chapters how the origins of these settlements and how their residents, like you said, understood their relationship to the state at the time were really integral to the organizational forms that they took in response to state intervention. So tell us how this unfolded differently in Captain's clip and Sicalo. Sure. Yeah. So this is, um, you know, as you, you said, these four chapters are kind of the meat of the book. And I know I've been talking a lot, uh, kind of an abstraction here, trying not to get uh, too detailed, but I think it's, it's sort of ironic given that the book itself is mostly straightforward, basically field notes, right? And, um, these four chapters, what they do, so this first pair is about, as, as you said, what I've called civil society articulations. So how um, in the process of occupying land, people wind up organizing themselves differently. So as I talked about before, in one case, this the plots are distributed to individuals in Captain's clip. And so they wind up serialized as individuals, each one a kind of homeowner in the making as they understand it. But in the case of Scalo, the civil society articulation is quite different. They wind up uniting, thinking that they're sort of 
taking on the repressive state because they have a history of facing the state as repressive apparatus, not the state as partner in delivery. And so what they do is they then organize into, they, they elect representatives, they form a, a committee, which we'll talk about in a minute. But at this point, they, they work collectively to ensure that this, um, and it's what in the book I call a fused group. So unlike the series or the seriality of the Captain's Clip occupation, where it's a bunch of individuals who, as I put it, um, are acting simultaneously, but not together as such, right? They're all participating in this thing, the land occupation, but each one is doing their own thing, let's say. Whereas in the case of Scalo, you wind up with a, um, a fused group, but where in, in kind of representing the state the rep as a repressive apparatus, as enemy here, they wind up uniting in something closer to what we would understand as a social movement. Now, um, one thing that's kind of counterintuitive here is you'd think if in Captain's clip people are getting these individualized plots, they are not trying to fight the state, they're just trying to become patient citizens, waiting, you know, doing the whole thing. From the state's point of view, from the, and to be more specific, from the municipal government's point of view, you would think this is the kind of, um, you know, this is the, the the group of ideal citizens who are kind of um, comporting with a model of individualized private property. But then when you have a social movement who sees themselves as challenging the state's repressive apparatus, you'd think this is where the government would crack down. This is one of the really important arguments in the book where, um, and this is about what Gramsci called hegemony. And one way that, that he talked about it is that every civil society articulation, so the way that people are self-organizing, automatically has a political society articulation. But this is often an unintended consequence. So in the political society chapters, what I do um, is talk about how in Captain's clip, this individualized nature of the occupation wound up militating against the formation of an elected committee. Instead, what you get are little factions where people are aligning with their immediate neighbors and trying to protect their own little plots of land. And everyone's skeptical of everyone else. Hence the seriality of the thing. It's, it's these individuals who are all on mutually exclusive plots. But in the case of, of Sitalo, you wind up with this collective project. And so what happens then is when the government sees, sees the political society articulation of individualized or serialized um, land occupation, this is factions. So what happens is housing officials and then the judges, because I talk quite a bit about how, this, um, how these land occupation cases enter the courts. Um, so judges, housing officials, all of these state actors see the thing as factions. Whereas in the case of Sigalo, despite constituting itself as almost like an anti-state social movement, they wind up electing a committee to coordinate the thing. Um, it winds up quite representative. At one point, there are nine members on the committee representing a different section of the occupation. They have regular report backs. And ultimately, you know, and that's down the line. In the beginning, there was one really, really important organizer. In the book, I call him Bong Kosi. And Bong Kosi is really important here because even though he's an individual, what happens is he's a kind of 
figurehead, so to speak, but of a of a very much unified um, collective. And and so the government and judges in particular see this project and don't recognize it as an anti-state social movement because they're not there, they're not listening to um, the protests, and they're not reading people's signs. What they see is a collective. And so when judges have to interact then with land occupations, what, how does that work if there's thousands of people in these occupations? Well, in the case of factions, factions jockey with each other um, for access to the judge, each trying to represent itself as the true representative of the occupation. But in the case of Scalo, where you had a unified committee, it's much more straightforward. At the beginning with this guy, Bongkosi, who's, who's um, the leader of the occupation, it all goes through him. There is no um, jockeying with one another for access to a judge or for access to a lawyer. And, you know, so I'm oversimplifying it a bit as to what I do in the book, but, but it's just to say that this political society articulation, so really how the state sees populations can often be an unintended consequence of how people self-organize, if that makes sense. No, very much. And it's, it's a, a really fascinating, very careful uh, analysis of how civil society and political society are, uh, are indeed fused with important consequences for uh, these settlers. And what's really impactful um, about your book, I found, is its applicability to other contexts and its contribution to the, the broader intellectual and, and practical project of post-colonialism. And at the end, your concluding chapter proposes four theses on the integral state for how we can use this theory to make sense of similar housing situations in, in other societies, other countries in the global South with similar colonial uh, histories and just similar uh, circumstances and racialized histories. This is a this is a really fine engagement. I wish other authors did more of. So I was uh, wondering if you could spend some time here explaining these four theses and, and give us an idea of what you see as their their greater usefulness in other places. Sure. So maybe I should actually start with the greater usefulness, and then I can work down to the you know the fine grained analysis of each of the theses. Um, but I think the kind of larger takeaway is crucial here, which is that, um, you know, often, first, let me just say that um, it was tough to do a project like this in sociology as a discipline. And when I started, um, I had a lot of trouble finding any relevant literature in our particular discipline. Uh, most of what I was engaging was in geography and anthropology and history. Um, Partly this has to do with the kind of uh, geographically parochial nature, I think, of American urban sociology. But increasingly in the last 15 years, 20 years or so, there's been a, a proliferation of, of work on the global south. And I think um, what's so distinctive, you know, not to not to make it just like a north versus south thing, but what's so distinctive about um, southern cities or, you know, I tend to prefer post-colonial because I think the, the colonial, uh, colonial history of dispossession has so much to do with the trajectories of urbanization we see today. So when we see informal urbanization in so much of the post-colonial world, um, it's only now, I think, in the last 20 years or so that we're seeing uh, the growth of the sociological literature on this stuff. But 
I kept getting frustrated when, when engaging the literature in, in other disciplines about the kind of um, explanation as to why states are evicting. Um, and I kept seeing it return, you know, my, uh, when I, I think I mentioned this earlier, but I got into this thinking it was all about development projects, and this is a straightforward kind of David Harvey story or something. Um, and I found it much more complicated, and, and that it didn't all play out at, you know, at the risk of being kind of crude here, didn't all play out at the, at the economic level, but often took on this political inflection, where it was about guaranteeing state legit the state's own legitimacy, or where it was about um, government officials not wanting to be embarrassed. Or, but but so the rationale for eviction often took on this kind of um, this kind of flavor. And uh, what I try to do in this last chapter then is to raise some um, some kind of generalizable takeaways from the analysis that that I do in the book to show how it might be applicable to other cases. And I actually think it's it, um, it also has insights, I think, for even American urban sociology. So, for example, the first thesis is about, um, you know, in the book I say the state is not a thing but a social relation. And so this notion that the state is not the self-enclosed entity hovering above civil society that, you know, I, as I tell undergrads when I teach political sociology, I say, you know, this isn't, um, you know, like a, a state that's hovering above shooting out state rays down below hitting populations. We need to think about this relationally. And in the book, the way that I show that how residents see the state impacts how the state sees them, the larger takeaway has to do with this relational view of the state, not imagining the state or, um, you know, often people read uh, Gramsci and and imagine that political society, as he uses it, means the state, like the actual buildings of the state, the formal administrative apparatus, the bureaucracy, that that's what he means by political society. And civil society is the people, self-organizing. And I think where it gets more complicated is these two are inextricable. Gramsci's really, really clear that the state encompasses both civil and political society. And what he means, I think, is that these, what I'm in shorthand, I might call them state outcomes, but let's say policy. When policy is implemented, so evictions are ordered. This isn't decided in isolation and then projected out upon a population. It's through the interaction with residents. And so I talk about this in, um, in relation to some of the urban studies and urban sociology literature and political sociology literature in this final chapter. So this first thesis about the state um, not being a thing, but a social relation. Then I have a kind of um, strategic uh, thesis that, that where I write, working with existing civil society organizations can often be a barrier to the formation of fused groups. Autonomously articulating such organization can militate against serialization. So I know that's a mouthful. So what I mean here is that, you know, there's this, this uh, fairly recent, last seven years or so, um, political sociology literature on what goes under the name political articulation that thinks about political parties as collective actors um, articulating pop uh, population. So bringing these kind of groups into being, um, that political parties are the agents that do this. And one thing I encountered in the book that um, kind of complicates that formulation is that when residents encountered 
um, existing groups. So take the, the Mitchell's Plain Backyard Dwellers Association, that group that, that distributed plots of land in the Cup Clip occupation. That was an existing civil society organization, almost like a party, and it saw itself actually as a political party front group tied to the African National Congress. And when, when the Mitchell's Plain Backyard Dwellers Association acted, um, or when people encountered that organization, it already existed, but look what happened. It produced factionalism and it fragmented groups. But self-organization, in other words, instead of, um, in the case of Stalo, instead of encountering some kind of external civil society organization, but instead building their own collective group, articulating it themselves and eventually electing a leadership, um, had the effect of of militating against this what I call in the book serialization, but the formation of these individuals who then form factions, if that makes sense. So I talk about this um, in relation to a lot of the political sociology literature in the book. Then I talk about and I think I, I um, covered this one a bit, but talk about how every civil society articulation is also a political society articulation, which is another way of saying. How residents organize themselves affects how the state sees them. A political society articulation, how people's um, self-organization, so civil society organization, how that appears to the state is the political society articulation. And how people appear to the state might not be what they think it is. So imagine, again, the Sucralo residents out there, and in the book I talk about some of their um, mass protests in detail. So at one point when um, when the uh, Independent Electoral Commission comes to try to register voters in the settlement, they see it as a symbol of the state, set it on fire, and throw the tent in the road. Um, they're regularly burning tires in the road, mass marches, throwing rocks. So a very oppositional social movement, yet perceived by housing officials and, um, and judges, they tend to be seen as the organized group, the coherent group coherent to the state as a population, precisely because they're organized, self-organized. So political society articulation is this kind of unintended consequence, I think. How the state sees them is certainly impacted by how they see the state and therefore self-organized, but just because people organize a certain way and want a certain outcome doesn't mean that's how the state is going to see them. And so the point of this thesis is to say, this is precisely why we need research that both looks at the, the from below and the from above, because we need to understand how these this, this kind of vision of the state and the state state's vision act in relation to each other and shape each other. You know, it's this kind of dialectical relationship. We can't say one causes the other. Um, and this is another thing I'm trying to write against in this book, the simple model of causality where you know, someone does a thing and then it has an outcome and then we say, aha, it caused it. Well, here we have this back and forth, this kind of recursive relationship between how residents see the state and how the state sees residents. Um, and then finally, I talk about, and I think I've talked less about this in, in this interview, but this fourth thesis is about how legal and institutional context is essential to understanding livelihood struggles in the post-colonial world. But what do I mean by this? There's um, now a pretty large literature on post-colonial constitutions, arguing that late decolonizers, so those countries that decolonized after the late 70s, 
um, tend to have constitutions that are far more progressive and even can guarantee socioeconomic rights, which, of course, you know, the, the American Constitution does not. And so Section 26 of the South African Bill of Rights, um, this is what I mentioned before, is part of the 96 Constitution, and it guarantees access to housing. Um, so this sets a, a certain framework in which people are, are then making demands, in which they're acting. So if you remember when I argued that how people see the state affects how the state sees them, well, if we start with that first moment, how do people see the state? Why are they... Um, why are they, say, in the case of the Mitchell's Plain Backyard Dwellers Association, they encounter this organization that's, that offers to hand out housing. Why don't they see that as weird? Well, there's a constitutional guarantee to housing. And the Mitchell's Plain Backyard Dwellers Association represents itself as essentially carrying out that guarantee. Um, in the case of Sigalo, when people occupy land, how do they justify it? I mean, they know it's illegal, sort of. But they also justify it in relation to the Constitution. They say, look, we're on the waiting list for 60 years. We're going to die and not get houses. But the Constitution, which itself was the outcome of anti-apartheid struggle, then gets um, kind of concretized in the Constitution. And people say, um, look, we're not getting what we were guaranteed by the Constitution. And so somewhat counterintuitively, many participants in the Stalo occupation uh, understood themselves to be of self-implementing their constitutional guarantee where the state did not becomes a kind of crisis of state capacity and people then filling that void. Um, and so all this to say is that is, is to say that the legal and institutional framework really, really, really matters. Um, you know, I could imagine similar work and I talk a little bit about the cases in the book of India and Brazil and why this context matters. Um, I could imagine work on you know, a, a couple places, uh, thinking of Carter Koppelman's work on housing delivery in Brazil and Chile, um, where there, too, it's articulated in a really specific way through the Constitution, which affects then how people mobilize. And how people mobilize affects how the state sees them. And so this institutional and legal context becomes really, really important. Um, and, and a large part of ethnographic uh, section, section of the book. So these four chapters, especially the latter two, focus on interactions with the courts and how this shaped struggles. So we might think of, you know, might not put uh, typically too much weight on, say, having a lawyer represent your land occupation. Okay, then the lawyer represents them to the judge. But what ends up happening in practice is that this lawyer encounters, let's say, in the case of Captain's Cliff, one faction. And then another faction is trying to access this lawyer. And there becomes a struggle internal to the occupation about access to the lawyer. And then you can imagine if we start with kind of embryonic factions, these get concretized, formalized into factions by virtue of access to the lawyer. And so then maybe if they can't get access to the lawyer, they seek out another lawyer. And so the whole legal process also has an effect, as I talk about in the book, of further factionalizing or serializing these these occupations. Um, conversely, where people are able to get direct access to legal counsel through the mediation of a leadership, whether that's an elected uh, body, whether that's an individual like Balnukosi, when one individual or individual elected body can mediate between the whole occupation and the lawyer, you wind up um, militating against factionalism. 
And so, again, all this is to say legal and institutional um, context really, really matters here and helps shape how people see the state, which then shapes how the state sees them. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, articulation. And thank you for this this model. This is very, very, hopefully going to be very, very helpful for uh, scholars going forward. Uh, so, Zach, you've been very generous here with, uh, with your time. But before we finish, please tell us what you're working on now. And I recognize this is a bit of a mean question because you just wrote this excellent book. And now I'm saying, what's next? What do you got going on? Sure. So I have a couple of linked mini projects that together are going to form the basis for a next book that I'm writing with the sociologist Marcel Perret, who's at University of Utah, um, who also is a, an ethnographer of South Africa. And um, one thing that neither of us did in our respective books, he has a book called Fractured Militancy. And so I um, that also winds up using a Gramscian framework, is also ethnographic. It's largely in Johannesburg. Um, but what's interesting is that neither of us in the book wind up using this concept that's so in vogue now, racial capitalism, that actually has, has its origins in South Africa in the early 1970s. Um, and so what we're doing now is thinking about how this concept of racial capitalism has emerged in both, uh, emerged quite differently in American and South African contexts. And today is very much an academic concept, but in its in initial iterations, um, in the early 1970s, in both contexts, the U.S. and South Africa, it actually comes out of, of struggle. So in the case of South Africa, um, it's a, it comes out of debates in the anti-apartheid movement broadly, asking the question, you know, um, liberals at the time often framed apartheid as this racist project that... Um, impeded capital accumulation. And so they imagined that if South African capitalism were allowed to develop freely, it would eradicate the kind of detritus of racialism, and that apartheid would therefore be eviscerated. And what anti-apartheid militants, um, both on the, the heterodox Marxist left and in the black consciousness movement, and in a number of, of militant black nationalist groups, began to argue is that what if racism actually helps increase profitability? What if it actually augments profitability? What if, in other words, it's a racial capitalism? And so all these strategic debates about fighting apartheid and whether that requires an anti-capitalist approach or not, um, produce this concept of racial capitalism that you know, I don't want to reduce it to a single tendency. It's it's a really, really vibrant and vicious debate that, that plays out. It often goes under the name of the race class debates in South Africa. Um, later, when Stuart Hall comes up with the concept of, uh, and writes about the concept of race class articulation, I think in this 1980 piece, he's referencing and building upon these South African debates. Um, in a U.S. context, it emerges in relation to debates in the Black Panthers. It emerges in debates around um, autonomous black work organizing in Michigan, especially in Detroit, um, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. Um, but you wind up with with a kind of comparable concept. If we think about how it emerges in the, we might say, in the black consciousness movement in South Africa and then the black power movement in the U.S. And so, so uh, more broadly, I'm working on a, book on this stuff with Marcel. 
Um, right now, um, I'm editing a special issue of Ethnic and Racial Studies. It should be out next year on what we call the South African tradition of racial capitalism. And so a number of South African and American sociologists are contributing to this thing, writing about key figures um, and the theories they developed and how this helps us understand more broadly the relationship between race and class um, in sociology. And so we're working on this. Um, I'm also working on a, um, a paper thinking about um, the relationship between two versions of theories of racial capitalism, that which tends to um, be tied to the American theorist uh, Cedric Robinson, most prominently in his book Black Marxism, came out in 1993, and then um, that which emerges from Stuart Hall's writings in the late 70s and mid-80s. So all of these projects, um, the broader orbit is thinking about the concept of racial capitalism um, and how race and class are fundamentally linked. Um, and, and I think where this comes in handy now is thinking about the relationship between racism and capitalism. Um, we get really, really different theories that all go under the name racial capitalism. Um, and some of these, to put it quite bluntly, um, capitalism generates racism. That racism is something, you know, even Du Bois made this argument, that racism is very much modern, he said, late 19th century, early 20th century phenomenon. If you look at historians like Eric Williams, even Walter Rodney has a few lines like this, um, where capitalism produces racism, to put it as, as uh, simply as possible. But then you have other theories, like in, in Robinson, where pre-existing racism that he calls racialism, kind of um, intersects with capitalist development and the two merge. But capitalism doesn't generate racism. So thinking more broadly about the thought and debates around race-class articulation in specific contexts. So I think there's some really, really good writing on this stuff coming out now, but so much of it operates at a theoretical level. And what we're trying to do is look at how these theories were generated um, in struggle in both cases and how this, uh, they were then subsequently absorbed uh, by the academy in both national contexts and in other national contexts. Um, so yeah, just working on this racial capitalism stuff. Awesome, thank you. It's a very big concept that's gotten a new life these days, and it sounds great that you're going to be uh, reflecting on it by focusing on how it has played out back at its source, where it was first uh proposed in South Africa. So Zach, thanks so much for this. Good luck with that project. When that book comes out, we'll, we'll have you back on again and, um, best of luck. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Rich. It's, it's been really good.